BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke Up Daily with your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from L.A. because I'm out here for a wonderful board meeting with the Ms. Foundation, whose board I sit on. If you don't know anything about the Ms. Foundation for women, you should look them up. They are supporting an organization that supports women and girls um, of color in particular at this moment in time and do wonderful grants to organizations that are working on behalf of women and girls of color in a range of different ways. Folks, let me start out by saying that, you know, the other day I was on the plane uh, traveling out here to California from New York. And I found myself completely and utterly off the grid, right? I decided not to pay for the Wi-Fi on the plane. And I'm looking around and everybody's complying with the mask mand- mandates. And, you know, all is moving well. Land in California. Uh, decide to turn on Twitter after not being online for about five hours. And come to find out that the Build Back Better, the $3.5 trillion Uh, infrastructure bill, which was supposed to incorporate both um, buildings and roads and bridges and broadband and traditional ideas of what we believe is infrastructure, as well as what it takes to have human infrastructure, meaning, you know, that Americans are essentially cogs in the capitalistic machine. And what does it take to have workers, right? And to have people have the ability to enter into the workforce because they have things like paid family leave, paid medical leave. They have things like support in cost of childcare so that women don't have to leave the workforce in high numbers because guess what? Uh, Their employers would be supporting childcare because we know that even in heteronormative circumstances, right, that it is women right? Even if, even if we want to believe that the world has changed, it has not. And the pandemic showed us this, that it is oftentimes when the sole responsibility of childcare ends up being 
on the family, it is women who end up having to leave the workforce to care for those children. And then we create a society and an environment that does not welcome them back in. And as a matter of fact, looks at any gaps that you may have on your resume. And if you were to dare to say that, oh, I had left my last job, but then decided to have two beautiful children, and then want to come back five years later, they look at that as if you are lazy, um, you are a problem, right? And what does that mean for your productivity down the road? Are you going to have to leave for parent-teacher conferences? What if the kid gets sick? I might as well get somebody younger, cheaper, um, without kids, not married, who I can work to death, right? So these are the types of issues that were part of what the Biden administration was referring to as their human infrastructure bill. And come to find out that when I got off of my flight um, from New York to L.A., that Senator Manchin decided that, among other things, he was going to take out the medical leave, take out the paid family leave, take out the child care costs, because you know what? He doesn't like the size of the infrastructure bill. It's just too big. And then also, guess what? Um, even though the Democrats have created an opportunity for us to have a billionaire tax, you know, for these people who do not get taxed through income, but get taxed through other means, to be able to pay their fair share, and so that the burden doesn't fall on the rest of us, middle class and lower income people and the poor, that, oh, he doesn't like that either. Even though according to many reports and on Twitter, there are no fucking billionaires in West Virginia. But there are, of course, billionaires, the heads of corporations that are giving Joe Manchin his money and his leash, apparently. So the reality is that we are getting nothing. We are getting nothing. And a couple of people had, you know, tweeted and said, this, at this point, what is happening is just cruel and disgusting. And I said, yeah, I mean, I know that I say these things on a relative, on a, a regular basis on Woke AF. I talk about how disgusting, how despicable. And I realized that at the end of the day, that's really just me blowing off steam because it's not as if these people, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, who, by the way, was on the floor of the Senate in a denim vest, like, first of all, A, it's not the 90s, and B, professionalism much, and C, no, I'm not talking about respectability po politics and in, in, as it pertains to dress, but what I'm saying is, is that if she were not a white woman uh, rocking a... Uh, denim vest on the floor of the Senate, then the amount of commentary that would have preceded how unprofessional, how uncouth, um, how not ready for prime time this person is. And you know, I got to tell you that it reeked of white privilege. It reeked, reeked of it. And it was disgusting. It was a disgusting display, but I digress. The fact is that many people are saying, well, you know, because they're already preparing themselves for the loss that we're getting ready to have, right? Because we're not getting the $3.5 trillion deal. We're not getting the robust, transformative new deal that everybody kept talking about. No, we're not. And the reality is, is that Joe Manchin is a piece of shit. Um, and here's what one of our friends, a friend of the show, um, and, and a woke member of woke AF nation, Zach Bacantis had said, he said, even a compromise build back better deal would be as historic and impactful as any initiative from the new deal or great society. 
the most significant investment to fight climate change in human history, the greatest American investment in childcare since our founding. And my response, even though I appreciate Zach and understand the perspective, right, that, you know, we, we oftentimes as Democrats tell ourselves, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Um, you know, something is better than nothing, right? But we set ourselves up in a way to continually have incremental change and mediocre progress with those sentiments. And I say that not because Zach was wrong, because he's not, right? This will be one of the biggest things to have happened, but it won't have as many teeth, or if any at all, or a spine, because all of the things that people were looking forward to in this bill that had yet to be written was the fact that it was going to address the needs that were made laid bare at the height of quarantine, right? When people, 2 million women, were left the workforce because having to balance teaching their kids on Zoom, right, who are probably, who were in elementary school or younger, as well as keep up with their day-to-day tasks at work, became too much to bear. And so what were they going to sacrifice? Their children's learning, which we already know how much children lost, right, in learning during this time. Or what, what were they going to do? What was, they were given a false choice, right? That's the reality. And so my feeling, my feeling here is this. It's what kind of choices are we actually giving American workers, Right now, you have, and we've talked about this on the show, you have over 11 million people that have left the workforce. They keep talking about on mainstream media about how we have some type of worker shortage. No, we don't. We don't have a worker shortage in America. There are plenty of people to work. But do you know what they're recognizing? That they don't want to work for peanuts. That they don't want to work 40 hours a week and not be able to pay for prescription drugs, put food on the table pay off their student loan debt. Coming up next, friends, is my conversation with Ruth Coker, the author of the book, The Public Insult Playbook, How Abusers in Power Undermine Civil Rights Reform. When they go low, we go high is a great turn of a phrase and an admirable way to go through life, but did nothing to defeat the radical right or Trump in 2016. Stay tuned for that conversation. And as always, let me know about what you think. Folks, I am so excited to welcome to Woke AF for the first time um, author Ruth Coker, who has written the book, The Public Insult Playbook, How Abusers in Power Undermined Civil Rights Reform. And how this book, Ruth, offers insights into how attacks have come to affect um, our contemporary public discourse, right? And the fact that, you know, we all have moved from the space where Michelle Obama has said, when they go low, we go high. And let me tell you something. When she made that point in that speech, I was excited. Um, But I also said, hmm, I, I don't know if that works all the time. I don't know if choosing the high road um, works when people are invested in taking us to the sewer. So can you talk to us um, about why you wrote this book and why it's important in the moment that we are currently living in? Well, I started writing this book actually because I was inspired by my good friend, Amy Robertson, who does disability rights activism. 
And she wrote this blog post, which is always such a great way for people to just get out ideas, right? She wrote this great blog post about how the political right in lawsuits being brought by disabled people were criticizing these people, insulting them, when all they were trying to do was get access to like a restaurant or hotel or whatever. And they would call them things like drive-by litigators, which is such a shocking term because drive-by, we think of like school shootings or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like guns Mm -hmm. and violence. Mm -hmm. And they were accusing these people who were trying to get into places that were inaccessible as drive-by litigators, you know, they they called them um, bounty hunters and all these insults. And shockingly, some judges accepted this characterization of these people who are just trying to access their basic civil rights. And so I, I uh, started doing research in the disability area to see how this insult was having such effect and limiting people's abilities to utilize one of my favorite statutes, the American Disabilities Act. And then after I started doing the work in the disability context, a publisher approached me and said, you know, I think this is a good theme. Do you want to pursue it outside of disability context? I go, yeah, you're right. And then I, as you know, I wrote chapters on many other different topics that we can discuss, but it was the disability issue that really got me started because I was just so appalled by these insults are being slung at people just for trying to access their rights that they were entitled to. Do you think that, you know, just staying in the disability vein for a moment, do you think that that community is still very much marginalized in terms of the language that we use? Like they are, they are readily a target by both the right and the, by, by, by both sides. I say, and I say that not because I like to both sides things to death because I definitely do not, but I say it because the language that we use these days are important, right? And there used to be things that we would say, um, that would reference a, a disability, but we were making the point of something not working, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and I still hear people use that language. So do you think that the reason why judges we're siding with the opponents is because this is a community that is is seen of as 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 a throwaway that we don't need to pay attention to. That is such a good point, Danielle. And one of the things I tried to do this year as a New Year's resolution, I've completely failed, is to stop using the word crazy every time something didn't make sense to me that I disliked it, that I thought it was wrong. Because of course I didn't mean crazy, right? I was mm-hmm. just using that as a shorthand. And so in modern, in popular discourse, we all do it. And I, I'm, I'm like you, I never do the both sides stuff. That really bothers me. But in this case, but everybody does it. Everybody uses shorthands when they, that are disability terms, when mm-hmm. that's not actually what they're talking about. They're not talking about someone's mental health or whatever. Um, and so many of them are unfortunately, you know, terms that have to do with mental health disabilities, which we are talking about more and that's great. But at the same time, we haven't stopped using these really disparaging labels just all the time in common discourse. You know, and and so I want to make the transition now um, to Republicans and Donald Trump, particularly in the way that Donald Trump um, campaigned in 20, 
in 2015 and 2016 and how his approach, if one can call it that, um, how his approach has completely changed the landscape of what is and is not acceptable in politics. There used to be things that were quote unquote off limits, things that you would never hear a politician say out loud because their campaign would be dead on arrival. That is no longer the case. Apparently there is nothing that is off, you know, uh, off, off limits. How did you see things begin to shift and how does that play into this playbook that you've put together? Well, actually, what I try to do in the book is use Donald Trump as an example as little as possible. Okay. Because I think that we misunderstand the Donald Trump, what I would like to call moment, but it's not a moment, right? It, what Donald Trump has done is given us a poignant example of the effectiveness of hurling public insults when you're a member of the political right and that you can do so with impunity. But the reason he could do it is because the mindset of accepting that kind of discourse was already present. He was just smart enough to figure out that he could harness it. But he, he, he was just doing things that had happened before. And it's actually not true that, that politicians couldn't hurl insults. So then one of the examples that I give in the book, again, going back to the disability context, is that when the American Disabilities Act was being considered by Congress, the right-wing Republicans insisted that certain exceptions be put in the statute. That we put in the statute that it doesn't cover transvestites and pedophiles and homosexuals, you know. The, and so the, even when Congress was passing a landmark civil rights statute on behalf of people with disabilities, Congress was slurring people with disabilities mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and if you, you think about the racial civil rights movement, I mean, there have been slurs against Black people forever, right? I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, and, and there have been politicians who have campaigned with Willie Horton ads and the like, right? That's their way of using the public insult playbook. So Trump is an example, of course. And has he helped make it worse? Absolutely. But I, don't th I think we need to understand him as part of the broader phenomenon rather than the phenomenon itself. I mean, Ruth, how did we get from an error, an era of political correctness, all right, what was termed as political correctness to this current insult culture? How did, how, honestly, because if it, if, if Donald Trump is a, is a symptom, right, which is what many people say, he's a symptom of a larger problem, a, 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 a there, there was a degradation that was beginning in our body politic before Donald Trump. He just exacerbated that. But how did we move from this space where certain phrases, certain things were deemed as off limits to now everything being back on the table and more? Well, I think, you know, one of the books that influenced me the most is Kendi's book. I'm trying to think of the title. Um, his, uh, How to anyway. be anti-racist? No, the other book. Oh, okay. um, anyway, he has two, he has, he has many books. But anyway, in one of his books, um, he says that what we need to understand about American history is that we have had both racism and anti-racism at the same time. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't mm -hmm. see this as one movement winning. So during the so-called political correctness era, if we want to call it that, the political right was still perfectly in existence. Maybe their voices were more muted for a while, but they were still there. And we always have 
both in American history from the beginning, right? We've always had both of those themes present in American society. And they vacillate as to whose voice might be the loudest and most be shaping public policy the most. But it were wrong to think that just because the political left for a time maybe was winning the so-called political correctness debates, that we had really won anything. It isn't winning and losing. They're both currents are there at the same time. And that's why I argue in the book that when the political left has the the dominant discourse, when we're winning the political fights, when we can get legislation through Congress, right? When we're at that particular moment, you know, which we were, for example, during the Obama administration. Um, we need to anticipate that the political right will be coming against us with this public insult playbook and put into place really strong structural reforms that will help deflect that strategy. We need to know that strategy is always there and always will be there. And when we have those political moments, when we have some power, let's make sure we use it in a way that's structural and so that the public insult playbook will be less effective against us. You know, I feel like our political norms, though, have been so eroded that I don't even, you know, for, for me, somebody who is, is a student of political science, has been in politics and in policy work for my entire career, I have never seen political norms eroded in such haste as they have been now. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the ways you think that in this heightened moment of tribalism, of, of nastiness, of cruelty, that this administration or other members uh, of, of Congress would even begin to reinforce those eroded norms? What do those steps begin to look like? I don't think we're going to get back the norms of civility, assuming we ever had them. I mean, that's, you know, that's, and in some ways that's sort of a pretense that people were faking it and we accept that they're faking it, but now we know mm. how they really felt. So maybe we should thank them for being more honest now. But <laughs> Yes. Yes. But, thank you for taking your hoods off. We appreciate <laughs> that. But, but, you know, you keep, keep giving national examples and so do I, but as you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has really made some important inroads at the local government level. Right. And so it may be, that we're not going to get the package that we want Biden to get through Congress right now, right? 3.5 trillion, I'd probably like 6 trillion, right? I bet you could agree with me on that one, right? But, but can we get some things done at the local government level where we can talk about what it means for there to be violence in the Black community, you know, by the police? You know, can we talk about what can happen there? And as you know, what the Black Lives Matter movement has done so masterfully is to say, okay, that's great. You know, let's criminalize Derek Chauvin's behavior. Let's go after him. But let's also ban chokeholds. Let's defund the police. Let's make structural reform at the local government level where maybe we can have real conversations, right? Maybe, maybe tribalism works there because there's just more support for the progressive views and we can actually get inroads. And instead of sitting around waiting for Congress to do something, I mean, if we're going to sit around waiting for Congress to I do mean, something, criminal justice reform, you and I are going to be long dead by then, right? Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're younger than me. But <laughs> but yet you, we do see changes at the local government level, right? It depends upon the community that you live in. And that's not enough. Obviously, that's not enough. But it is something. And we shouldn't minimize it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think we should just sit around and wait for civility to return because uh, you know, one of the things I show in the book is that from mm -hmm. the founding of our republic, we had uncivil discourse in Congress. I mean, 
there's this, uh, you know, dueling and all that stuff. Remember that? You remember yeah. That? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, and we we were talking about mudslinging then, right? When, right. when you're right. when you were talking about local, state, um, and 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 federal elections. You know, one of the things that you that is conjured in my mind as we're talking about, you know, local levels that I'm thinking right now, what has been happening at our school boards. Right. What has been happening across the country at our school board meetings? Like we, you know, toxicity, to your point, isn't just at the federal level. It has actually marinated its way all the way down. And so you're seeing these school board meetings take place, which were never points of major contention. Right. Like I'm I'm not hallucinating that fact that school boards used to talk. The, the most contentious thing they were talking about is, you know, uh, more money or less money or, you know, and and, and that was it. Now we're talking about, well, schools are years away from vaccinations and don't wear a mask and these policies and harassing these people. And so what does it look like to you if part of the pushback right now is that the people that are representing us at all different levels are not truly actually representing the people? And one of the one of the positive sides of this toxic moment that we're in is engaging more people to actually take up the mantle and want to run for office. But they feel like they can't do so because they're literally going to be putting maybe a literal or a figurative target on their backs. What is your advice for those people that are saying, you know, I want to take the system back. I do want a return to civility or as close to that as we can get. Well... I mean, obviously, that is great. I don't think, unfortunately, I have any answers there. I mean, and one thing my research, I think, has shown is that it doesn't help for the political left to engage in mudslinging. This mm. is that's why I call it, you know, the abusers in power, um, the political right. That's who I'm criticizing. As you may have noticed from time to time when the political left tries to engage in some of that playbook, it actually doesn't work. It's I see the playbook as part of the protection of neoliberal mindsets, capitalism, you know. And, and so if we think of things like bounty hunters, um, I, I mentioned that um, the disability community was accused of being bounty hunters, right? When they tried to enforce the accessibility provisions of the ADA. Now, as your listeners know, right now, the state of Texas has yep. emboldened bounty hunters, right? To go after mm-hmm. women who are having, who want to have abortions. And guess what? Bounty hunters now is okay. When the political right wants to use that term, they're using they're leveraging that term to get something. Mm-hmm. Where it's the same people who criticized disability activists for also trying to get something to try to get accessible structures. So I, I think we have we have no choice but to want civility as, it, by being part of the political left because we don't have the choice of slinging insults. It's not going to work. There's no evidence. I couldn't find any evidence of the political left ever achieving anything through insults. Um, but the political right is masterful at it and really has that tool. And so one of the things that I have found, it's depressing, but I think it's powerful, <laughs> is, is that, you know, as Black men have been murdered, and of course others, but principally mm-hmm. as Black men have been murdered, and the, the immediate thing is for the newspapers and else to talk about their criminal record and all this mm-hmm. nasty stuff, right? And the Black Lives Matter movement has been so good at immediately coming back and putting up pictures of these people in their high school graduation regalia or, you know, or with their children, yep, with arms yep. around them. Why? Because they're trying to counter that political right image. They anticipate it. And, and now, it's, you know, it's become harder, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, we... It, you know, when we when we think of Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. his 
piece of candy, you know, and the way the mudslinging went against him, as compared to how the media has had to handle George Floyd, it's a lot of years between those two events. I think it's about seven years between those two events. Um, and a lot of things have happened in the middle. But um, I, so I think that we have learned that we need to make sure is that we present positive images and we don't accept this mudslinging. We don't accept these public insults and we anticipate it. So we're ready with these positive images in the media. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's, that's, a real, that's been a very effective tactic. I was going to, you know, I, I hear you on the effectiveness of it, because I think that in, in, in that example, it is incredibly important to change the narrative as well as the visuals, right? When we are talking about victims, I, you know, I think about the ways in which we have changed how the media engages with victims of sexual assault, right? Where it is no longer acceptable to go through uh, a person's background, what they were wearing, all of these different things, and just have to tackle the issue at hand. I think I, I would, I would hope, right? I don't think that it's going to be similar, but I would hope that that would be the case for victims, uh, uh, you know, victims of police violence, right? That we're not talking about what it was that the police did not have access to and understanding that person before they gunned them down or, you know, cut off their oxygen for eight minutes and 46 seconds, but instead taking things in, in the situation that we know. Um, is it a hindrance though for the fact, for the left, for those that, that insults don't work on our behalf? Because it, it requires us to then have to be once again a lot more nimble and a lot more strategic than the right ever has to be. Yeah, you know, and you know, before you said, what do I say to these people who are reluctant to run for school board? You know, they they're and I mean to be involved in political activism is exhausting, and mm -hmm. and we all need to have our mental health resources. You know, friends, family, people who support us. It is exhausting. And when, you know, I teach young people, um, I teach people in their twenties and, and I understand that it is exhausting. I have children myself who are engaged in, in this kind of work, but you know, it's worth being exhausted for. I mean, yeah, you know, you know it's sort of like, this is a, maybe a bad analogy because I'm not good at sports, but you know, when, <laughs> when people used to say, when we have a mediocre black center fielder, we'll know there's racial equality in professional baseball, right? It's not when we have the superstars, yeah, they'll always get to play. Well, not always, but, you know, more recently we're able to play. But, you know, Black people are entitled to be as average as white people at the same pursuits. And, you know, that's just the way it works. But before that, you have to be twice as qualified, right, to, to have those opportunities. And that's 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 what it means to fight. And that's what it means to stay in the fight. Um and I don't, I don't think we're helping ourselves by misleading ourselves about that. It, it's hard to achieve progress. It's easier to, to maintain the status quo or to even move backwards. So what do you say then, Ruth, to the people that say we must fight fire with fire or that in this political climate, you have Democrats that are bringing, you know, a pen to a knife fight? Like what, what, it, what is your response and your book's response to, to those old adages? Yeah, I mean, it's probably true. I mean, you know, we could certainly find some evidence of the Black Panthers maybe helping to move the civil rights movement. And we shouldn't think of the civil rights movement as a monolithic development that only used civil disobedience, that there were some more, 
aggressive voices, you know, within the Black civil rights community arguing for other kinds of tactics. Um, and so, um, you know, I do believe that we each have to ask ourselves what's the role we personally can play and make sure we're playing a role in doing something rather than, you know, sitting and, and not doing something. Um, but um, it, it's the road to civil rights progress is just, it's really long, you know, and it's not getting any shorter. It's, it's a, it is a hard journey. I mean, if you think about it, all the political right has to do is say no. They mm. say no, yep. they said no to anti-lynching laws. You know, they say they said no to civil rights laws. We had to overcome a filibuster, right, to get the Civil Rights Act. We couldn't overcome filibusters to get anti-lynching laws many years ago. You know, it, it's easy to be in the political right because all you have to do is say no. You don't have to write legislation. You don't. Nope. You just. You don't no. have to offer a platform. You don't have to. You know. You don't. You don't have to offer anything. Right. Where's that Affordable Care Act that they were going to rewrite? We've never even seen a draft of a bill. You know, they, they've never had an alternative because they, they don't need one. They just say no, no, no. And um, so it's harder to be part of the political left because it does take a pen, right? It takes a pen to write legislation to get passed and it takes people in the streets to help create the momentum for the legislation to, to get passed. It takes a lot of people doing a lot of things. Um, but you might say to me, isn't it fascinating? The political right doesn't even need a pen. All they need is the red X mark. Mm. I mean, Ruth, the, the, the last question, you know, f for you on this is that if, if all the right has to do is say no, and the left cannot co-opt the tactics of the right because it, 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 it doesn't work with our base, then what does the future of our body politic look like when insults and cruelty have become the norm and replace civility and we are so far from that place. Right. So I guess I would argue that despite the incivility, it is possible for people on the political left to be the political majority. You know, we saw it in Obama's first term, the first two years of his term when we had a supermajority in the United States Senate. I know we don't have as many moments in U.S. history as you and I might like um, that are like that. But when we do have those moments, I think we need to be more creative in thinking about what we want to seek. And so, you know, as you know, we didn't get immigration reform during Obama's first two years, and we could have. And that is a real tragedy that we didn't do that. Um, we wasted a lot of time trying to get bipartisan support for the Affordable Care Act, and it never happened. It was going to have to be a party line vote all along. And so hopefully we learn from our experiences of being the majority so that when we find ourselves in the majority again, we're more efficient, right? We're more successful. We're more thinking about what's going to happen. And um, I have to be confident. I have to be optimistic that young people um, understand what we need to do to save our planet, to advance civil rights. I mean, that we're really in a moment of crisis um, and that the Republicans just saying, no, 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 is turning off a lot of young people. And hopefully we will soon find ourselves in a supermajority again. We need that, right, to achieve the kind of structural reform that's important. But in the short term, we can at least try to achieve change at the local government level where we won't need to have the supermajorities that we need in the United States Congress. You know, I think that one of the things that we have seen, right, um, that, the, that the last 
uh, four years under Trump has shown us is that, and, and what the last 10 months under this new administration has also shown us is that, you know, what happens at the federal level is not the silver bullet. Um, it is what it is how power is dispersed across the country and at all levels of our government. Um, and that if we don't have our eyes in all of those places, then you can see how we can be caught out in the cold as I think that we are now. Because my fear is that we're not going to get the opportunity for a supermajority again. That if Democrats um, lose in 2022 and then again in 2024, we are done. Um, that's a conversation I continue to have on Woke AF. Um, and I know that people consider it to be hyperbolic, but the writing is on the wall in so many different ways. Thank you so much, Ruth, for making the time to join us. Folks, the book is The Public Insult Playbook, How Abusers in Power Undermine Civil Rights Reform. Ruth, I hope that you will come back and join us again. I would love to. This has been a real treat. And I love your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.